Last Sunday, I shared with you the vision for East White Oak Bible Church and talked about our focus being seeking to be worshipers maturing in Christ, that our vital signs were to be rooted in Scripture, growing in Christ, and making disciples. That was the way that we saw how that focus could be measured, the vital signs to detect whether that's happening. And we looked at three pathways by which our discipleship happens here in our worship services, in Bible fellowships, and in small groups. I would encourage you to look at that message if you have not already participated last week. This morning, we're going to dive more deeply into this question of making disciples as a vital sign here, particularly as it relates to making disciples of the nations and think about the vision for missions here at East White Oak Bible Church. Now, East White Oak has had a long history of dedication to taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. In fact, uh, I was just talking with Jean Frink before our service, a lady who's uh, been, she and her husband Howard have been very dedicated to East White Oak missions for decades. And uh, Howard was always uh, uh, reminding me that the very first meeting of East White Oak Bible Church in 1892, there was a motion that was made among the membership to establish a missions outreach at East White Oak to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Uh, And so we have a long history of that. This morning, I want to spend a little bit of time with you looking at the state of missions here at East White Oak, and also while I'm doing that, share with you the state of missions generally in the world. Uh, And so let's think about that. Here are some numbers for you to think about. Those are not numbers before you hike the football, but rather they are some statistics about East White Oak missions. We have 46 current missionaries, We have three national ministry partners, that is nationals that we are partnering with in their ministries. We have 17 retired missionaries. There are 18 different agencies that we support, both local and national and international. And last fiscal year, 23% of everything that went out from this church went to missions. So those are some things that will help you understand a little bit of where we are in the state of missions in our ministry. Why missions? Well, first of all, it's a response to worship. If we are worshipers maturing in Christ, we want everybody to know about it. And so it's a response to our worship. It is a command of our Lord. Jesus told us to go and make disciples of the nations. More on that in a moment. And then thirdly, missions is a response to the great need in our world. Now there are many needs in our world. There are needs of poverty relief or what people may term social justice or any of a number of many, many needs in our world. The great need of our world is that people know Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day. That is the great need of our world. Now, the picture in missions 
here in 2022 is very different than it was a generation ago. Even as uh, near ago as the year 2000, it's very different over the past 25 to 30 years. So, for example, over the last three decades, over the last three decades, the number of North American missionaries serving overseas, this is vocational missionaries, people who are doing it for the long term, the number of North American missionaries serving overseas has decreased by 40,000. The total number of missionaries from all nations has also dropped from 440,000 to 415,000. That's a drop of 25,000, which means that the rest of the world outside of North America has actually gained missionaries by about 15,000, but they aren't making up the gap, while at the same time, the world population has gone from about 5.5 billion to 8 billion people. So we're increasing in the number of people on the planet and decreasing our missionary force. 24 of our 46 current missionaries are in their 60s. And so as we look at the, tra- the easy for me to say, as we look at the trajectory of missions, this indication of a declining missionary force is something that is happening here at East White Oak and is happening in the church more broadly in North America. The baby boomer missionaries are retiring and dying. And there are few who are taking up the mantle to serve the Lord Jesus overseas. Fewer churches are sending long-term missionaries as they naively, in my view, believe that short-term missions will fulfill the Great Commission. Now, don't get me wrong, I love short-term missions, and we have all kinds of short-term missions opportunities coming up this next year. But the goal of short-term missions is to awaken in our hearts a desire and a focus of being a world Christian, and to even awaken in our own hearts a call to serve in vocational Christian service overseas and to support it and to pray for it. But sadly, many churches these days think that by doing short-term missions projects, they are fulfilling the Great Commission. Nothing could be further from the case. Additionally, Those who do go to the mission field are dropping out at alarming rates. An estimated 12,000 missionaries leave the field every year. 12,000 long-term missionaries leave the field every year. 71% of them leave for preventable reasons. There are people who go home because of, you know, ill health or some other kind of emergency, but 71% of them are doing it for preventable reasons. And it costs, this is happening at great cost to missions, it costs $350,000 to successfully launch a missionary family of four 
So for them to leave is heartbreaking. Almost half of all missionaries, 40%, 47%, leave the field within the first five years of their service as missionaries. The two biggest reasons why missionaries leave the field are conflict with other missionaries and the lack of care that those missionaries are receiving from people back home. They feel lonely, ignored. Uh, it, yes, involved in financial support, but also a lack of fervent prayer, a lack of connection. I think about, again, Howard and Jean Frank, who established a friendship with Dave and Darlene Noden in the 1960s, where they wrote each other every week until phone calls became even better, and they still, Jean is still talking to Dave and Darlene every Sunday night, and has done so that kind of connection since the 1960s. It's that kind of deep relationship that engages people to stay on the field. So that's the picture in missions today. But not only is the picture in missions very different than it was a generation ago, the need in missions today is very different than a generation ago. The great need in missions is to reach the unreached peoples of the world. Now, in order to understand what the unreached peoples of the world are, I've got to give you a couple definitions. First, what is a people group? Well, a people group is a group of people <laughs> who have a unifying ethnic identity. They have a common affinity with one another because of shared language, religion, ethnicity, residence, occupation, some combination of that. There can be many people groups in one nation. For example, in Tanzania, which we have a long affection for and have missionaries there, there are reached people groups and there are also many unreached people groups in the same nation. It's also true that there can be one people group that crosses several nations. The Kurdish people, for example, are one of the largest people groups in the world without a nation of their own, and they cross several nations. Nations as we understand them come and go, borders change, but people groups are more, more permanent. The term translated nations in the Bible really means people groups. So what is an unreached people group? If a, Reached people group, if, if that's the definition of a people group, well, an unreached people group is where any people group where less than 2% are Christian and the existing church is so weak that it cannot reach their own people. That's the definition of an unreached people. Now, you may be asking yourself, why is reaching an unreached people more important than reaching any person with the gospel? Why, after all, should we go to all these different people groups? Why shouldn't we try to maximize the number of people saved and stay here in our own land and try to reach as many Americans as possible? That's a good question. And the reason is because of a little thing called the Bible. <laughs> Consider what the Bible has to say about the Great Commission. And I'm going to put in the Greek words here so that you know that they're talking about people groups. 
Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of Pantata Ethne, all of the people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Or Luke 24, 47, Jesus commissioned that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all of the people groups beginning from Jerusalem. Pantata ethne. Romans chapter 1 verse 5 in Paul's introduction to this great epistle, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the people groups. Pasintois ethnason. Galatians 3 8. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and here's a promise that dates all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. The heart of God, in you shall panta ta ethne, all the people groups, be blessed. This is why we make such an effort to reach the unreached people groups of the world. They have never even heard the name Jesus. And it is our Lord's command to reach them. Did you know that Americans spend more money on Halloween costumes for their pets than goes to supporting reaching unreached people groups in the world? What is it that makes unreached peoples unreached? Well, here's where it gets hard, friends. Because if they were easy to reach, they would already be reached. The reason why unreached peoples are unreached today, in this moment, 2022, is that there are peoples that are hard to access. There are nations that are prohibiting them from from people getting there. There are persecutions. There is resistance. There are physical obstacles. It's just hard to get there. And when you do get there, it's hard to live there. (laughs) That's all kinds of reasons. But the reason why unreached people groups are unreached is they're hard. And so what God is calling you and me in this generation is to take our best and send them to the hardest. That is the call of the church here in 2022. So, there's a second need. The second great need in the world is for theological education. Of places where the gospel has already gone, The problem is that there's all kinds of false teaching, most particularly the prosperity gospel has just invaded the third world. The idea that Jesus is here in order to make you healthy and wealthy right here and now and all you have to do is have enough faith and you'll be healthy and wealthy is so attractive to the third world person. There's increasing opposition to the gospel around the world, including in our own land. 
There's a lack of access to good teaching in the heart languages of the world. People need to hear good theological teaching in their own language, in their heart language. This makes it hard. You might say, well, what's a heart language? Let me show you a picture. This is my wife, Carol, in Rome this past summer. We had just left a a museum, and there's an artist that's there in a park. Carol walks up to her, and she's got a, a video about the life of Mary Magdalene. It's a video about how women came to know Jesus. And she picked these videos up to take with us to, to uh, Europe because there was a number of languages, the places where we were going to go, like Italian. So she offers this video to this lady, and, uh, and Carol's thinking, okay, it's in Italian, she'll be able to understand it. And she turns it over and looks at all the languages that are on this video, and she, her eyes brighten. She says, it's in Farsi. She's from Iran. She's an artist who's studying in Rome, and she's from Iran, and it's in her language. What do you think the chances are that she watched the video? You see, there's a great need for theological education in the heart languages of the world among the unreached. Today, most of the people in missions are doing neither reaching unreached people groups nor are engaged in theological education. This isn't to say that what they're doing is wrong. It's not saying that they're bad. It's not saying that other churches who have other priorities are misplaced. It is a statement of fact. Very, very few people are engaged in the greatest missionary needs of our time. So, of our 46 missionaries, six are engaged in reaching unreached people groups. Of our 46 missionaries, four are engaged in theological education of church leaders. And 42% of our missionaries are outside the U.S. That's an improvement because six years ago, only 30% were engaged outside the United States. Now, we're not going to drop missionaries in order to establish our priorities, but we are going to change some things about going forward. So the question is, If the Holy Spirit calls the church to send missionaries, how does East White Oak do that? I'm glad you asked. First, Acts 13, verses 1 through 3, forms a huge biblical basis for why we do what we do. Hear what Acts 13 says. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. And here were the names of these prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, I don't know about you, but it'd be kind of fun to go to a church where Barnabas was the preacher one week, and the Apostle Paul, the guy who became the Apostle Paul, was the preacher the next week. You know, it's kind of exciting, right? Don't you want to just kind of keep those guys around? But notice, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. They gave of their best 
to do the hardest. How did they do that? Well, how does East White Oak do that? It seems to me that we ought to engage in what the first church did while they were fasting and praying. It involves warfare, my friends, that we would say we will give up our food in order to send people from our number to reach the unreached, to engage in theological education among the already reached. Devoted prayer to say that this is our passion, God. We ask you to raise up from our number these who will do this great calling. Now, practically, it involves a mentorship program. By having a mentorship program, that does two things. It equips missionaries, and it helps some people see that they're not meant to be cross-cultural missionaries before they ever start the long, difficult process to become one. So, for example, that dropout rate of missionaries, if you do some work in the preparation phase and the people find out that they're not supposed to be missionaries, that's a good thing, isn't it? And so, for example, in the past six years, we have had five people go through our mentoring program. Two of them became missionaries. But it was a success for all five. They were discipled, and they became much clearer on the direction that God had for their lives. And so, in how we do this, it involves a long and deep relationship that we go longer and deeper with specific people, and then as we launch them, we give 50 to 60% of the financial support in order to send them out, which is a very different picture than what's happened in traditional missions in prior generations, going deeper with missionaries rather than broader. Here are some advantages of that. The congregation becomes a deeper partner with the mission's work and knows that the person that we're supporting. They've been sent out from our own number. The training and vetting of the missionary is the responsibility of our church, not the mission's agency. Mission agencies are very helpful with logistics, but as far as the training and vetting of that person, that's the church's responsibility, much as Acts chapter 13 indicates. The time that's spent on home assignment is longer and deeper with our church. The missionary serves as an additional staff member with the church while on home assignment. We believe that the retention of the missionary for mission service will be higher with this kind of deep relationship. Missionary kids have a real home in the United States. Ask a missionary kid who's an adult now, where are you from? They will stutter. Wouldn't it be great if the ones we send out say, East White Oak is my home. The church provides an internship and training for the specific field of operation outside the U.S. The church becomes proactive then in where it sends its missionaries. The church is no longer reactive, somebody coming to us and saying, well, this is what I want to do and where I want to go. Give me some money. Rather, the church is doing the sending the identifying of the place and working with the person as to where they go and what was best suited for how God has created them. And we believe also that other churches and individuals are likely to support that missionary knowing that significant support already exists. 
How do we do this? Well, here are the process. The applicant is a member of our church. It's part of us. The applicant is willing and able to accept the guidance of the church in determining the destination of service. Working together with the church in identifying where and what they will do. Individuals interested, and hopefully there are some here this morning who are going, whoa, I'd be interested in knowing more about that. You're invited to engage in a missionary candidate mentoring program. It's geared toward the individual or family that would desire East White Oak to be their sending church. If you want more information, you can contact us at info at eastwhiteoak.church. And then the applicant, of course, is devoted to going to an unreached people or providing theological education for, to groups that cannot provide this education for themselves. The applicant commits to an extensive internship at East White Oak then, where they will be given opportunities to do the same things that they hope to do on the field. And then they receive 50 to 60% of their total financial support from our church as they would commit to spending 50 to 60% of their time on home assignment as a staff person here at East White Oak with special attention given to promoting missions within our church. Wouldn't that be wonderful? We have missionaries here who are going around encouraging other people who have an interest in becoming missionaries as well. My personal vision, this is Scott's personal vision, is that one person every four years from our church becomes a missionary to unreached peoples or theological education. And that the rest of us pray for, send, and join with that person. Your missions team and your pastors stand ready to help you to identify if the Holy Spirit is calling your church to set you apart for missions work. And that doesn't just mean going as a missionary. If you want to know, how can I be more engaged in this? How can I be a more faithful prayer partner? How can I be a better, more generous giver? How can I develop a relationship with one of our missionaries that's deeper like the one that I described that Howard and Jean Frank have with Dar Dave and Darlene Noden? Wherever you are at, your pastors and your missions team is ready to help you engage to a greater degree in identifying how the Holy Spirit is calling you to be set apart for missions work. Don't wait. Don't think, I'll do that someday. Do it now. You know, this idea of everybody engaged in praying and sending and going, all ages, every person in our church is the idea of being on a war footing. And brothers and sisters, whether we know it or not, there is a war over the souls of men and women and boys and girls going on in our world today. It's a war. And we need, as the church of Jesus Christ, to be on a war footing, every person fully engaged. 
60 years ago tomorrow, Winston Churchill was addressing a conference of coal mine operators and miners at Westminster's Central Hall. Now, it was a short speech and can be read in five minutes, and as Churchill's speeches go, this one was rather routine. No brilliant oratorical flourishes, nothing really memorable, until he got to the last paragraph. Here's what he said. Now, mind you, they're in the throes of war, and he's calling everyone to be engaged in that war. We shall not fail, and then someday when children ask, what did you do to win this inheritance for us and to make our name so respected among men, one will say, I was a fighter pilot. Another will say, I was in the submarine service. Another, I marched with the 8th Army. A fourth will say, none of you could have lived without the convoys and the merchant seamen. And you, as he addressed the coal miners, and you in your turn will say with equal pride and equal right, we cut the coal. Every person in this church needs to step up in our commitment to taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. These two great needs, theological education and unreached peoples. Why, why are these the two great needs? Well, they are things that no one either can do or wants to do, but by God's grace, East White Oak Bible Church will do it. So that leads to the next question. What does it mean to be Jesus' disciple, his follower. I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14 briefly. We're going to be looking at verses 25 to 33. Luke 14, 25 to 33. And the first, there's three times here in this short section of verses, Jesus says, you got to do something or you can't be my disciple. You got to do this or you can't be my disciple. The first one, comes across to us rather like boom, hard hitting. It's one of those things that we would call, in fact, all of them are part of what might be called the hard sayings of Jesus. Here's the first one. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, if you've been a Christian for very long, you've heard the explanation. Well, of course, Jesus doesn't really mean hate. He means by comparison, you don't hate. And that is true. Jesus is speaking in a metaphorical way. But let us understand the weight of the metaphor. Let's grab hold of the weight of it that there are things that we hold precious and dear that we are going to say, we hold out to you, Jesus. This is what it means when we do child dedication, right? Not ours, not our baby. It's yours, Jesus, for you to do as you will. There are two challenges today. 
On the one side, there are people who sacrifice family on the altar of personal gratification. You know, they don't really care about their families that much. They aren't that committed because they're interested in their own personal thing. That's one problem. Thinking that having children will hinder their flourishing. But the other side is just as insidious, isn't it? We worship our family life thinking that family is the ground of being. Neither are true. Seeking to be worshipers, maturing in Christ is the ground for the Christian. We have families, but they are as an act of worship. We place our sons and our daughters, our fathers, our mothers, our sisters, our brothers, and even our own lives on the altar of service for Christ as an act of worship. Not my will. What does this mean in terms of our mission? It means a willingness to send our sons and daughters, our mothers and fathers into the fray, a drive and a desire to see our parents or our children or our grandchildren go to the hardest places to make an impact for Christ. A willingness to go ourselves, and if not going, to put the sending of our own people to the hardest places at the forefront of our prayers and of our church life. This, I believe, is what it means when Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Why? Well, this leads to the second one in verse 27. Because being Jesus' disciple means that we must suffer bearing our own cross. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Bearing our own cross means that there will be times of struggle. It implies that the struggle will be painful. And it further implies that we need to do this together as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we do not struggle alone, but that we do so in community. Together, we have a determination to come after Jesus. And then thirdly, what does it mean to be Jesus' disciple? We count the cost and renounce all that we have. Jesus calls us to count the cost. Look at verse 28. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Jesus asked us to count the cost. These two illustrations, first of a building 
You don't just start building without calculating, do you have enough money to finish the building? Uh, The second one is going to war. You don't go to war unless you count the cost and figure out you've got enough to be able to win the war. We count the cost. Now, some will find the cost too high and will shrink back. I have no idea if those who do so are saved. Some are like, likely saved and some are not. But Jesus does say, count the cost before you throw your lot in with me. Don't build if you don't have the money to finish. Don't go to war if you don't know that you'll win. Now, I know by what I'm saying here that I'm not making a bunch of people want to come to our church. <laughs> um, but this is not my teaching. This is the teaching of our Lord. Jesus' hard sayings are called hard because they are hard. In John chapter 6, verse 60, many of disciples heard Jesus' teaching and they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? In verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So there is a sense in which we are challenged the very deepest part of our souls over these hard sayings of Jesus. If we don't hate our families, you cannot be my disciple. If you don't bear your own cross and come after me, you cannot be my disciple. And finally, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, I know with a message like this, as, a, as your pastor, I don't say these things because I want to hurt you. I say them because they're true. And I know that when we accept this call, that I am sending some of you to suffering and perhaps even to death. These are serious matters. This is Dwight Eisenhower on the day before D-Day speaking to the 101st Airborne Division. Eisenhower was 53 years old at the time. He's speaking to these young men, most of them teenagers, knowing that he was sending many of them right to their deaths. But he did so in the firm conviction that this war had to be won. I'm struck by a second photo of Eisenhower. This is Eisenhower at 73 years of age at the cemetery at Normandy. Look at the expression on his face. He knows that it was his decisions that led to the deaths of these young boys. That it had to be done. But it's painful to do so. This morning... I am calling our church to a greater task 
than the task of the Allied forces in World War II. I'm calling our church to engage in the greatest cause that Jesus Christ has ever given anybody, the call he's given to his church to reach the people groups of the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning I want to share in conclusion the story of two young men. The one on the left is William Borden, who was born in Chicago to wealthy parents. He was not from the Borden condensed milk fame, but rather from silver mines in Colorado. His mother became a Christian when Borden was about seven years of age. And Borden grew up at what later became known as the Moody Church and responded to the preaching of R.A. Torrey and put his faith and hope in Christ. At age 16, his wealthy parents gave him a gift. It's kind of, it's a pretty amazing gift. A chaperoned trip around the world. Those of you that are 16 can ask your parents for that. <clears throat> but that trip around the world lighted a fire in Borden's bones for missions. He entered Yale in 1905 and he started a prayer group. The prayer group consisted of two people, him and another guy. By the end of his freshman year, there were 150 people at that prayer meeting. And by his senior year, 1,000 of the 1,300 members of the entire student body at Yale were engaged in the prayer meetings. 1,000 out of 1,300. After seminary at Princeton and some leadership responsibilities at the Moody Bible Institute, Borden set his affections upon the Uyghur people in China. That's a Muslim people group, unreached even to this day, that's much in the news these days for being persecuted by the Chinese Communist government. In order to reach them, Borden felt he needed to learn Arabic. And so he went to Cairo to study that language. And while he was in Cairo at the age of 25, he contracted spinal meningitis and died before he ever reached the field. One hundred fifty miles to the west of where Borden grew up, and almost exactly one hundred years later, David Sample was born to Mike and Martha Sample in rural Port Byron, Illinois. David loved the Lord and the outdoors in that order. He became an Eagle Scout. He was a key contributor in the distribution of Jesus videos in neighborhoods throughout the Quad Cities. He loved the theology class that I taught to our high school group. He went to Cornerstone University with an eye to becoming a missionary to Africa. One summer between semesters, he went to Uganda for a summer missions trip. He took a mal malaria medication that today one article says the neuropsychiatric side effects of this malarial drug are well documented. They include anxiety, depression, hallucinations, acute psychosis, and seizures. David experienced all but the latter to an extremely high degree. 
He had to come home early from that missions trip. He was never the same. He still loved the Lord with all his heart. One day he came to me in my office, sincerely looking me in the eye and asking me if he was the Antichrist. He was unable to continue school. He came to worship, read his Bible, memorized verses, listened to Christian radio, but the burden was too great. And David Sample took his life. Shortly after David died, I wrote to his father, Mike, who was an elder in our church in the Quad Cities. By then I had been here for a while. This is what I wrote to Mike. Mike, my brother, my heart aches with you and Martha. I remember David's exuberance in worship as a high school student. He always had his hands raised. He's always exuberant about worship. I remember his passion for the Word of God the year I taught theology to our high school students. I remember his passion for missions and for making Christ known. I remember the thrill of accomplishment he felt upon achieving the rank of Eagle Scout and how kindly he looked with appreciation upon his mother at that Eagle ceremony. I remember his excitement as he was leaving to go to Uganda. On the day that we left Wildwood, David came up to Carol and told her how blessed he had been to have been her partner in the Jesus video distribution many years before. There's a verse of an old gospel song that says, give of your sons to bear the message glorious. Give of your wealth to speed them on their way. Pour out your heart for them in prayer victorious, and all thou spendest, Jesus will repay. I told Mike, you must take by faith the truth of the song. Your loss is too deep for words, but consider two things. First, how would you want your son's life to be poured out? For money? For pleasure? To waste in riotous living? To live a quiet, upper-middle-class life? No! A thousand times no if our children's lives are to be poured out. Let them be poured out in service to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And David's life was so poured out on the altar of sacrifice to Christ and his lordship. Second, what is this life compared to eternity? Surely the loss of David is a deep and tragic loss, but let us keep our eyes fixed on heaven. That is our home. That is our destination. And that is where your beloved son now resides with the arms of Jesus Christ, welcoming him into heaven. As I reflected upon David's life, I was reminded of the life of William Borden, and I told some things about Borden to Mike. David also wanted only to serve the Lord Jesus in Africa. He contracted illness there and now has died at a young age. In the vast expanse of eternity, with the reality of heaven beckoning, 
It is surely worthwhile to consider that David expended his brief life on this earth in the pursuit of the right things. To be sure, the illness contracted made his last few years ones of great pain. But we must not view this from the perspective of earth, but from the perspective of heaven. David very literally spent his all on serving his master. Jesus told this parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. David sold all he had and bought the pearl of great price. People debate whether or not what I'm about to share that I wrote to Mike in the letter is true or not, but I believe it is. Borden wrote in his Bible after he had resolved to give his million-dollar fortune away, the words, no reserve. Later, after his father told him he would never be allowed to work for the family company again, he wrote below that the words, no retreat. Shortly before he died of meningitis in Egypt, he wrote yet two more words, no regrets. This is William Borden's and David's sample legacies. No reserve, no regret, no retreat. On Borden's tombstone in Cairo, there are these words, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. This morning, I want to ask you to do three things. If you have never put your faith and hope in Christ, sell everything you have and throw your lot in with Christ. He will give you a glorious life here filled with meaning and purpose and hope and yes, challenge. And he will give you a life forever that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can conceive the things he's prepared for you. Trust Christ. Secondly, I call all of us to give up everything we have for Christ and for making him known. And thirdly, and very specifically, come to everything at our missions conference. You will not regret it. Oh, Father in heaven, make these truths of our vision for missions here at East White Oak real to every one of our hearts. May we pray and fast and consider and have a different mindset that the unreached peoples of the world may know you and worship you and that those places where there is such weak theology may have teachers, and that from our own number, you would raise up people of all ages to take the gospel in this way to the ends of the earth. It's hard. It's hard. Give us the strength to do it. Thank you for your promise, Jesus, that when we engage in this, you are with us always to the very end of the age.
Amen.